This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Right now, though, we have an opportunity to deal with something that is a major concern, and that is the rollout of the vaccine. We are still waiting for more details on phase three because we realize phase one and phase two are a lot about allowing healthcare workers, frontline workers, long-term care workers, long-term care residents to be vaccinated because they are in such vulnerable positions. That's phase one and phase two. Phase three is everybody else. Not sure how that's all going to work out. But also in phase one and phase two, we have indigenous communities. How is that working out so far? Well, please welcome to London Live, Grand Chief Joel Abram from the Association of Iroquois and Allied Indians. Grand Chief Abram, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Uh, thank you for having me. We're all wondering about the rollout of the vaccine. We're all wondering how it's going because we have a very tiny list of individuals who are to get it first, and then that list can expand on that list. Indigenous communities who might be remote, indigenous communities that might not have access to being able to go to some kind of vaccination spot. What do we know about the vaccine rollout right now when it comes to indigenous communities, Grand Chief Abram? Uh, Well, we know that it's uh, been kind of uh, slow just because of the limited uh, availability of the vaccines right now. And although some of them have gone to remote communities, I know we're looking at uh, reconfiguring that because uh, where the prominence of uh, actual infections are, which is, you know, around Toronto, southwestern Ontario, and uh, First Nations in this area are also being uh, drastically impacted by uh, coronavirus as well. Uh, For instance, as of 10 a.m. this morning, Oneida has 36 infections and in a small community, that's quite a lot. Uh, we have managed to keep it out for quite a while, but now it's uh, taken hold, and it could easily happen in other uh, First Nations as well. We're all trying to point to reasons why it may be picking up right now in terms of case counts. Anything you might point to when we're talking about First Nations? <clears throat> yeah, I think one of the, you know, people might ask themselves why First Nations over the general population first, you know, in terms of you know who's going to be getting it first. And, uh, you know, the two main reasons are, you know, uh, comorbidity. Uh, there's different socioeconomics in First Nations. And so that's led to higher uh, incidences of comorbidity. You know, we're talking about things like uh, diabetes and other ailments that have higher prevalence in First Nations people and at a younger age. Uh, the other uh, reason is because of overcrowding and uh, lack of housing. And so when there's more people in the household and one person gets it, the likelihood of other members of the household uh, drastically increases as well. And because of there's a lack of housing, there's also a lack of uh, spaces uh, to quarantine, uh, isolate a person as well. So those are, you know, the main reasons uh, why First Nations were sort of targeted as being among the first to get it. Uh, now, yesterday, uh, there was 111 doses uh uh, made available to the community because they, we also have a long-term care facility. Over 50% of the residents there are not First Nations people, uh, but uh, there was a couple staff there that were infected, so they had to uh, bring in some doses. So they got the all the uh, residents uh, were were uh, given the vaccine. 
so all the residents tested negative, which is a good thing. And uh, I think the staff were able to be quarantined as well. So hopefully that'll be uh, okay there. We also have uh, seniors uh, residents, and uh, those people were also given a vaccination. But there's other people. Uh, we have a few language speakers left, and so those are people that we'd like to target as well to be among the first to uh, receive the vaccine as well. Grand Chief Joel Abram joining us from the Association of Iroquois and Allied Indians. Grand Chief Abram, how about the system that is in place? Because right now we've got a, a shortage of vaccines simply because we haven't had enough arrive and we've got everybody who wants them. And so we're still waiting for that to fall in line. But if the system is in place, then once the vaccines arrive, they can be accessed, they can be put into arms, and onward and hopefully upward we go. Are you confident in how this would play out when we do have enough vaccines to work with? Well, I think, you know, we just have to follow the science and the advice of health professionals, you know, and hopefully that the new vaccine will also be uh, effective uh, against the new variants. And uh, I think I've heard some evidence uh, saying that it is uh, right now. So, um, you know, I think everyone just has to, you know, continue practicing, uh, you know, social distancing, wearing masks, and just generally following guidelines. And uh, we'll have to we'll have to do that because in the meantime, until, you know, we're, I think it was maybe in a month or two, we'll start getting a million doses a month and uh, start to get everyone uh, vaccinated up. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the plan, okay, is uh, good so far and, and uh, targeting the most vulnerable populations first then. And everyone will just have to, you know, do the best they can and, uh, you know, ensure public health safety for everyone. Let's hope so. Grand Chief Abram, anything else you'd like us to know before we go? Um, No, I just, uh, you know, like everyone else, just encourage everyone uh, to do their part and be responsible because we know there are a lot of people that aren't doing that. No, we certainly do, and that was just outlined by the province in releasing their latest modeling numbers. Grand Chief Abram, you please keep safe, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for the time. All right, thank you. That's Grand Chief Joel Abram from the Association of Iroquois and Allied Indians. So if you are wondering, okay, well, why are Indigenous communities on the list in Phase 1 and Phase 2? There is an answer in in terms of the comorbidities, in terms of some of the remote locations. This is not an easy thing to decide, and that's why the next breakdown, the Phase 3 breakdown that is apparently being worked on, is going to be interesting. It's going to be really interesting to see, okay, how detailed is it? Do we do something like they have in the U.K. where they're vaccinating everybody who's 80 and over? And then it becomes 70 and over. And then it's 60 and over. And 60 with comorbidities. And 50 with comorbidities. Is that the way that we're going to do it? Can we break down vulnerability? Because eventually, it's going to be tough to split some hairs. How does that work? But it gives us an opportunity to talk right now with Dr. Daniel Coombs, professor of mathematics in the Institute of Applied Mathematics at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Coombs, good morning in B.C. How are things? Oh, yeah, good morning. Uh, things things are good out here. It's raining. We're, we're all happy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if we're to compare, because I always wonder about B.C. winters. So rainy and, and how cold? Do you at least get rainy and almost double digits? 
It's nine degrees right now. I just took my kid to school, and uh, yep, it's uh, it feels warm out there. I had to take my jacket off. <laughs> Look at this! Oh, we're dealing with a, a tiny little wind chill, and the stuff that's falling from the sky here, even though we don't have a lot of snow, is freezing to the ground. So uh, I'll trade you, but I, I don't think that's in the works right now, Doctor Coombs. We've had the province of Ontario announce modeling numbers just about an hour ago, and these are numbers that you tend to deal with when you're looking to create modeling numbers can you take us through how you even start um yeah it's it's i mean there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of pieces to it but I'll, I'll try to break it down you know the, the purpose of a, of a model is is to take what you know and and i want to emphasize as well uncertainty in what you know um and look at that in a, in a quantitative way that allows you to understand um, and project forward into the future uh, based based on based on where you are. So so people might say, well, actually, you don't know how many cases there are because not everybody gets tested, and that's true. But we can incorporate that into a model, you know, um, as an in, as as an uncertainty in the input, and then we can get a corresponding uncertainty in the output. Now, I haven't actually looked at the uh, Ontario modeling, although there, there was some discussion of it yesterday that I was able to look at, and it, and it does sound like those projections right now for Ontario are, are, are quite um, depressing. And um, the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, thing, the thing for me is, is that you have to remember that, that projections based on what we know and what we think is going to happen, um, and and what how those projections were made were based on with the current level of restrictions in Ontario, uh, and and imagining that that was going to go forward into the future. So this is not a prediction of what will happen because it sounds like Premier Ford is going to make a uh, is, is going to make some changes which are going to impact the transmission from from here on. And so hopefully that projection will never come to pass in Ontario. Let's hope so. And and I think maybe you raise an amazing point right there, Dr. Coombs, and that is we have to draw a division between modeling and predictions because it would seem to us like this is a prediction, but there's a difference, isn't there? Yeah, there, there is a difference. No no model can can you know, so, 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 you know, we, we project forward sometimes, you know, one of two, three months in the, in the future in this pandemic, and we do this out here in D.C., but we're fully aware that our project, I like to use the word projections rather than predictions here to, for exactly the reason, to make exactly the point that you're, you're saying, but our projections are only valid based on where we're standing right now. If Dr. Henry, our provincial health officer, comes on the, 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 the TV you know, a week from now, and says, "Right, we're gonna, we're gonna. Uh, everyone has to stay home for, you know, for the next week. You're not allowed to go out at all." And then we know that's going to make a huge impact. But we don't try to predict that uh, in our in our modeling. What we try to do, though, is is give a sense of, um, you know, for different levels of restrictions that might come in, what could, what what would we project would happen with, with those different levels of restrictions. You must have so um, many is, different variables to deal with. How do you figure out which variables to kind of put your finger on and which ones to watch? You try to keep it as simple as possible and not overstate where what what and not overstate 
your ability to predict. So you say, this is my projection with contacts at 40% of some background level. Uh, and then people ask, okay, well, how, how do I get my contacts down to 40%? And, and we always have to say, well, you know, we're looking averaged over the whole population. There are healthcare personnel where they can't really reduce their contacts that, that easily. On the other hand, there are people like me who work from home uh, and, and don't socialize, and I've reduced my contacts down, you know, just by not teaching at the university, my contacts are down to probably 10% of what they usually are. So then we average that all out, and you say, okay, well, maybe that's around 40%. Maybe if restaurants were fully closed, that would take us down another five. You know, um, it, it is it is a tricky thing. Um, I just I just want to just want to emphasize one thing about the modeling, though. So, um, is that's a big uncertainty for a lot of people at the moment. Is is the is the UK strain, which I'm sure you've heard about. Um, and I was really sad to see that the announcement from um, uh, uh, Dr. Um, is, it, is it Yaffe? Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Barbara, Barbara Yaffe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got your from Ontario Australia, people yeah. down pat. <laughs> I'm doing my best here. Um, today, saying that they, there's 14 detected cases so far of, of the of the strain, of which three are not related to travel, which is very disturbing. So it means those people were picking up that strain in the community in Ontario, um, and that that's a, that's pretty, that's an example of the kind of uncertainty. You know, so so I think we could be fairly confident that the UK strain would show up in Canada, um, but the question was when when would that day be? And so, um, in the modeling, I think they looked at, you know, imagine it's here today, but and, and it turned out to kind of be correct, but it could have been two weeks from now or two months from now, and that that's another example of the uncertainty that you build in um, when when you're making those projections. And usually, when you're talking to policy people, you want to give them a range of projections and explain what the different pieces going into the, that model and that projection are. We're talking right now with Dr. Daniel Coombs, professor of mathematics in the Institute of Applied Mathematics at the University of British Columbia. And is that why we get a worst-case scenario, best-case scenario, and usually a line that draws in between? Yeah, that, that, that's projecting certain forms of uncertainty. That, that, yeah, that will be the uncertainty in the... Um, in the numbers going into the model, but as I said, if, if the province changes course with the policy, you know, a week from now, it's essentially impossible to build to build that in unless you, unless you explicitly address that that particular scenario. Right. Well, we really appreciate you taking some time, Dr. Coombs, to explain modeling and how it comes together. And here's hoping that you can be modeling something else sometime soon. Is there a favorite thing that you like to look at and model that we can project toward that doesn't have COVID-19 attached to it? Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to my to my regular research on, on immune cells, which which unfortunately always <laughs> you can always take what I do and and, and, and apply it to uh, <laughs> to COVID because the immune response is so important there. But uh, I, I'm excited for the day when I when I don't think about COVID for uh, for 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that hasn't been for months and months and months at this point. Dr. Coombs, please stay safe, uh, stay dry, and uh, do enjoy the nine degrees today in Vancouver. Great. Thank you so much. That is Dr. Daniel Coombs, Professor of Mathematics at the Institute of Applied Mathematics at UBC. We need a different kind of Mardi Gras, and we kind of have one courtesy of Marymount.
And we get an opportunity to find out about that right now because joining us is the executive director of the Marymount Family Support and Crisis Center, Paul Howarth. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me on your show, Mike. You're turning Mardi Gras in New Orleans into Mary Gras from a virtual standpoint. Please tell us what you are doing, because we're all in need of something that sounds like this. Yeah, well, it's going to be a really fun evening. It is a 100% virtual event. Um, we have great food that's being prepared by uh, Chef Van Eldrick at RBC Place and specialty cocktails from uh, Top Shelf Distilleries. Uh, Mardi Gras theme music and entertainment throughout the night. It's a virtual event, so you'll pick up your food at the RBC place, bring it home, prepare it at home under the direction of the chef, mix your cocktails, and uh, the rest is up to us to keep you entertained uh, from 6 till 8 p.m. On, on February the 11th. This is fantastic. So curbside pickup where we're actually going to get we're not just going to watch people prepare food if essentially we we're going to be in on eating the food too yeah you, you take it home the chef walks you through exactly uh how to prepare it you prepare it at home i mean he's done most of the work you just do uh the the final cooking that uh, under his direction through video and uh you enjoy a top shelf meal at uh, at home this is amazing. Okay, Mary Gras, which is on February the 11th, so we've got just about a month away. How do we go about getting involved? How do we get tickets for this? Right. So tickets, uh, if, if you're, or there's two ways to to partake in our event. One is, as I mentioned, having the food and, and everything prepared. We need uh, people who want to have the food to order their tickets by uh, January the 22nd, so next Friday. Um, they go to our website, marymount.on.ca, go to the events page, and, and it's pretty straightforward from there. Um, if you want to attend the event without the food option, you can purchase your tickets uh, through that same method right up to the night of the event. We're talking right now with Paul Howarth, who is the Executive Director of Marymount Family Support and Crisis Center. Paul, let's get serious for a moment, because Marymount does such a phenomenal job in this area and is maybe working harder than you guys have worked before. Can you tell us a little bit about what Marymount does and who Marymount helps? Sure. Well, I mean, we serve over 8,000 families in the London area every year. Um, we offer a wide array of services. Uh, the, the, this event is going in support of our um, crisis residential and respite program, which is our overnight bed program. We have 18 beds that are on our facility and, uh, you know, usually 100% occupancy with uh, children th throughout our community that, uh, for various reasons, need our care. And in terms of need right now, from what we're seeing with some of the stresses and the pressures and all of what has existed during this pandemic, what are you finding at Marymount? Yeah, you know, it's been rough. Families in London and, and really everywhere are, are stressed, right? It's been a long year worrying about keeping your children safe, keeping your family safe. Add to that worries about work and paying rent and paying for your groceries. You know, it all builds up, and it adds a new layer of stress above and beyond normal parenting stresses. You know, and you add to that a parent or a child with a mental health issue in a year where it's been difficult to access care or maybe, you know, just 
you normally rely on the support of an extended family who can't give you that help right now. And uh, it's just a lot for families to navigate. And uh, sometimes they just need a break. And our respite care program provides an outlet for those families so they can, you know, focus on other important tasks like important medical appointments for, for the parent or for a different child in the family. And, you know, we can take care of your child for that night while you attend to those things. And it really just provides that little bit of breathing room so that, you know, you can come back the next day more refreshed and ready to assume those difficult parenting tasks that we all need to do every day. And here you are creating something that will provide even more breathing room for all of us where we can maybe put this down on the calendar February 11th, get involved in Mary Gras in one way or the other, either by, you know, taking advantage and, and getting in on, on that meal and or just enjoying the entertainment that goes on. We can visit more or find out more at marymount.on.ca. That's marymount.on.ca. Paul, thank you so much for creating this and for telling us about it. Please keep safe. Thank you. You too, Mike. I really appreciate you having me on today. That's Paul Howarth, Executive Director of Marymount Family Support and Crisis Center. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.